Okay, we're going to be in Acts 2 this morning. And all the liturgical churches around the world today is celebrated as Pentecost. Uh, some of them do it next week. But this is 50 days after Passover. That's where we get the word Pentecost. That's what we'll be talking about today. So I thought I would start the service by speaking in tongues. <laughs> Freak everybody out right off the bat. Uh, here's the first one. Baruch atah Adonai Elohenu Melech HaAlom Asher Kishanu Mitzvotav Mitzvanu El Sifrat HaOmer. That's Hebrew. And it means, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to count the Omer. Now, Omer was a measure, a unit of measurement for uh, harvesting, like wheat, barley, grain. Here's another one. I, I hope I pronounce all this right. Yulogomeni es basilia to paratros kai to yo. That's Greek. It means, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit now and forever and to the ages of ages. I have one more for you. This one some of you might know. In nomine patris, et filiae, et spiritus sancti. Amen. And that means, that's, that's Latin, of course, uh, which the church used for a long time. And that means in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we will go to the altar of God. Now in houses all over the world, houses of worship all over the world, this is how services begin, with these blessings. And the blessing and acknowledgement of God's sovereignty Christian churches specifically, dating back to the early centuries, these blessings included a recognition of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, as Baptists, we tend to spend a lot of time talking about God the Father and Jesus the Son, but in my experience, we are less likely to talk much about the Holy Spirit. We may mention the fruit of the Spirit or refer to the Spirit as our seal, sealing us in salvation. But generally speaking, we don't speak about the Spirit as a person of the Trinity, even though we claim to believe that. We tend to shy away from talking about the gifts of the Spirit, especially speaking in tongues. That's part of the reason I began by speaking in tongues, offering a blessing in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And of course, I offer a translation as well, because that's how Paul said that it worked, right? In 1 Corinthians 14, 13, he said, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. So I'll give you all the interpretations so that I wouldn't be breaking any rules. Much of what we know concerning the Spirit, in fact, comes from Paul. Uh, although he was not the first to mention the Spirit. From the very beginning of Scripture, the Holy Spirit was involved in everything that was going on. Genesis 1-2 reveals that the Spirit was hovering over the face of the waters, ready to form everything we see around us, including our own lives. 
In John 16, Jesus himself promised the disciples that after he ascended his throne, the Spirit would come and convict people concerning sin and righteousness, guiding people into truth, glorifying the Lord. So when we come to Pentecost, we need to understand the feast as God intended it so that we might better understand why God chose that exact moment to send the Holy Spirit. Because we know that God isn't random, right? Everything has a purpose. And so we're going to look at that this morning in Acts 2. If you will follow along with me, we're going to read Acts 2 beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. May God bless the reading of his word. Okay, so as we begin, the disciples are all together in one place, and from this point forward, that would be less and less the case, as they were sent out into the world to proclaim the good news that Jesus is the risen and rightful King of all. But in this moment, they were all together. And it may be the case that they were still sort of collected and hiding in the upper room where they had shared Passover with Jesus and seen him when he appeared before them after his resurrection. That may be the case. Hiding because they thought they might be next. Worried that the religious leaders or Romans might want to obliterate them and any other followers of Jesus before they became a problem too. They had right to be concerned because all but John would face a martyr's death in one way or another, as far as we know. And many other believers would also be martyred for their faith. There's a whole list of them. There's books made about them. Fox's Book of, Book of Martyrs is one of them. They were also there because Jesus had told them to wait. In Acts 1-4, just before ascending his throne, Jesus said they should wait for the promise of the Father, and that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit soon. And this caused the disciples to ask if this was the time when the kingdom would be restored to Israel. And Jesus answered them by saying that they would receive power 
from the Holy Spirit and would carry out the great commission that he had given them. To go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. So they were waiting. And it must have seemed like forever, although it was probably only about 10 days or so. But it did. It seemed like forever. Kind of like it does when we have to wait for things, right? We aren't very good at waiting. It's why we have fast food and drive-throughs, uh, self-checkouts, overnight shipping, and streaming services uh, for our favorite shows where we can watch whatever we want. We get kind of upset if we have to wait a week now. We still have to wait a week all the time, but now you, just, you watch everything, so waiting a week is a weird thing. And speaking of drive-throughs, this just hit me. There is a church in Houston where you can drive through, receive a blessing, give your donation, and drive off. I don't know how that works. But anyway, drive through church. There you go. So when it comes to waiting on the Lord, isn't it far more likely that we kind of already have our minds made up when we ask Him for direction? Isn't that what usually sort of takes place? Or that we aren't willing to wait for long before trying our own strategy? So we don't live in a culture that values patience. And the church in our time reflects that impatience in the way we have gone about trying to influence the culture. We haven't taken the long road. We've tried to take the shortcuts. Likewise, in our own personal lives, we have given ourselves over to a mindset that whatever the most expedient way is, well, that must be the Lord's way. Right? Nothing could be further from the truth. And that's why patience is a fruit of the Spirit. We need to learn what it means to wait on the Lord. And we could begin with Isaiah 40, 31, where the prophet said that they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We used to sing this as a song at the end of our worship services in the church I grew up in. And we'd add, teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, wait at the end. Uh, which I think we're going to sing at the end, hopefully. So you'll get, to, you'll get to hear it. But most of the time, waiting means not knowing. We just can't stand not knowing, right? Even if it means we will be strengthened in the long run. For me, the idea of not knowing and having to sit around not knowing for any extended period of time, it's just the worst thing I can imagine. It's like the old prayer goes, Lord, grant me patience and do it now. I think it would be a good thing for all of us if we individually and collectively slowed down. If we were actually patient and at peace with waiting, with not necessarily knowing all everything right this minute. I think we might just end up being a lot less stressed in our lives if we turned over all our anxious longing to the Lord and just rested quietly at His feet. I know that's hard. Believe me. But I also know this. When I've been patient, whether because I chose to be or had no choice but to be, when I have waited on the Lord, things have gone infinitely better than when I have not. 
I think if we all took a moment to be honest with ourselves, we would realize this to be true in each of our lives and our collective life together as a church, as the people of God here in this place. So the disciples waited. And when Pentecost arrived, they were still all together in one place. But before we get to what happened next, let's look at Pentecost itself for just a minute. When the Lord led Israel out of their slavery to Egypt, he took them to the mountains of Sinai and Passover that had happened sort of gave way to Moses receiving the law as God gave Israel his instructions for living in shalom, in his peace. We call these the commandments. And they had everything to do with what life would look like in the kingdom God was establishing among his people. Along with the commandments, the Lord gave special instructions for seasonal celebrations that they would enjoy uh, both then and in the promised land to which they were being led. And among these celebrations, there was a direct correlation between two significant seasonal celebrations. The first was Passover, which marked the final plague of death and salvation from slavery. And this was immediately followed by what was called a wave offering of the first fruits, an offering of grain which took place on the first day after the Passover Sabbath. The priest would take uh, an omer of barley, sort of a, a, a small little bundled bit of barley about this big, and wave it before the Lord in the tabernacle or the temple, and then offer it to the Lord as a sacrifice. We know from historian Josephus that after they would, they would dry it and then crush the sheaf of grain and purify it for grinding. Then they would bring it to the altar as an omer, that's that omer word for God. And after throwing a handful of it on the altar, they would leave the rest for the use of the priests who didn't have their own farms and all that kind of stuff. So there was a way of taking care of things. And at that point, everyone then was permitted to begin the first harvest, to begin harvesting their fields. But there was a second harvest to come, a larger, more expansive harvest, which would be marked by a connected offering and feast. And the second celebration, which would take place 50 days later, was known as the Feast of Weeks, because it was seven weeks and then a day, and celebrating the first fruits of, of that first harvest and the giving of the Torah. That was all connected together. Now, the Greek word for this feast is Pentecost, based on the number 50. And when we connect the dots that God has set out for us, we see that Passover led to Pentecost on purpose. Establishing the children of Israel as a nation and giving them an identity rooted in the covenant promise of God and his instructions for living in Shalom through the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. I know that that's a lot to digest, right? It's a lot to take in. But I'm hoping it will become more clear as we move along. If it doesn't, we can discuss it over at lunch. You don't need to ask me whatever questions. And maybe I will have answers. Maybe not. But all that to say, this was the feast that the disciples were prepared to celebrate along with all Jerusalem when this happened. The feast representing the first fruits of the larger more expansive harvest. And as they gathered seven weeks after, after the resurrection of Jesus, as they waited, something incredible happened. 
according to what Luke wrote here, a sound like a powerful wind came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were gathered. Now, about a week and a half ago, there was a massive dust storm that blew into town. If any of y'all were around for that, uh, it was moving extremely fast. And when it hit, there was this sound that came with it, like, like just like this big sound. And I imagine this is maybe a little bit like what the disciples experienced that day. But that wasn't all that happened. Along with the sound came what Luke described as divided tongues as of fire. And I'm guessing he meant the way a fire was sort of split as it rises and break off into like separate flames that, that sort of lick out into the air. Uh, not like a candle so much where there's just one solid flame, but like a roaring fire that has multiple bits rising from it. Only this fire came from above and then rested on each disciple. Now, can you even picture this? It's just beyond anything I can wrap my mind around, honestly. But I think the prophet Isaiah may give us a little bit of understanding on the nature of these tongues of fire. In Isaiah 6, he recounts having a vision of the Lord in the temple after King Uzziah died. And after describing what he encountered in that incredible moment where sort of the hem of God's robe fills the temple, and he experiences God, and he, he realizes his, that he's a, a broken sinner, and that he shouldn't be there in, that, in that, the presence of God. He has this whole moment. In verses 6 through 8, he wrote this. Then one of the seraphim, which is an angelic being, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Isaiah wasn't burned by the flaming coal, but was purified by it. And then it answered the call to proclaim God's message to the people. In other words, there is fire representing purification, and then there is ministry and the proclamation of the good news. It seems as though something similar was happening with the disciples in this moment. They had been purified and were being sent out to proclaim the good news to everyone by the power of the Holy Spirit. Which should bring up some questions for us. Have we been purified by the fire of the Holy Spirit? And if so, have we accepted our calling to proclaim the good news of Jesus as the risen and rightful King? Is that what we're about? Because as wild as this whole scene must have been to those who witnessed it and experienced it, the whole point was in line with what happened to Isaiah. Purification and then proclamation. That's what we see unfold in Acts 2. In the process of all this crazy stuff happening, we are told that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
And as they were speaking, proclaiming Jesus as the risen and rightful king, we find out that there were a bunch of people in Jerusalem from every nation, all over the place, east and west, north and south, all had come together. And as part of the reason is because it was Pentecost and Jews had traveled to the city for the feast. But it was also due to the fact that Jerusalem was a major hub of commerce and trade. It was a central point on various trade routes over in that area, the Mediterranean Middle East. So there were people from all kinds of places there who were not Jewish and were not there to celebrate Pentecost. But the sound was so loud that people outside the room also heard it and then they went to see what it was. And this very mixture of people, both Jewish and non-Jewish, gathered around the place where the disciples were. And when they gathered to investigate, each of them heard the gospel proclamation in their own language. They were amazed at this because the disciples were Galilean, but people gathered from all over the Mediterranean world, not just there. And yet everyone there heard about Jesus. They heard that he was crucified, risen. They heard that he was king instead of Caesar. They heard everything they needed to hear to have a basic grasp of the gospel. And we know that Peter went on to give a whole sermon explaining it in a little bit more detail. But they still seem to be confused at this point, which is probably why Peter gave the sermon. But we see this in verse 12 where they're asking, so what does this mean? What's going on? Same questions we would probably ask if something like that happened, right? What's truly amazing about this is both God's timing, that, he would, that this would take place at Pentecost, the time of the first fruits of the harvest, as well as the evident extent of the Holy Spirit's power to overcome seemingly impossible obstacles such as language barriers. This leads us to something else that was happening in those moments. Uh, a couple of things, actually. First, that people gathered from all over heard the gospel in their native tongue. That was truly remarkable. Because then they would take that message back with them to where they went. That's pretty crazy. It was a unique and unparalleled event. But there was another connection here. In Genesis 11.1, 1, we are told that the whole earth had one language and the same words. And at some point, the people decided to build a tower that reached into the heavens at a place called Babel. So they made bricks and mortar, and they got to work. And the problem in that story wasn't their blueprints was their motivation. And we see it in verse 4 of that same chapter in the phrase, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. See, God had consistently commanded humanity to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But these folks decided that they had a better plan. To build a big tower and have a place where everyone would come to them place where they could just stay put, not really have to go anywhere, do anything special. 
place where they could make a name for themselves instead of their creator. Has the church done this as well? Have we become hostile to the world instead of caring for it? And have we built all these religious, glorious buildings and a name for ourselves and decided that people can just come to us instead of us going to them? Because the Great Commission isn't terribly different than God's command in the Old Testament. We are supposed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as well, only we are doing it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be about the work of the kingdom, bringing in the harvest, of which Pentecost was merely the first fruits. Because the harvest is still taking place. Is that what we're doing? Have we proclaimed the good news in our daily lives? those we encounter? Is that what we're about? Or have we decided to build a place for people to come to us? Because the gospel isn't just a Sunday morning thing. It's not just a sermon from the pulpit kind of thing. The gospel is supposed to infuse our entire lives. It's supposed to be the thing we care about most and the thing we share whenever we get the chance. Because what happened at Pentecost was a complete and total reversal of what happened at Babel. Not only was the language unified through the power of the Holy Spirit so that the gospel could be communicated effectively that day, the disciples were then sent out into the world. The gospel wasn't just for the disciples in that room. It wasn't just for the Jews or Jerusalem or Judea, but for the uttermost parts of the world. And when we look at what happened at Pentecost and then as a result of Pentecost, where all of them went to all the parts of the world, how are we connected to that? If we have received the gospel and the Holy Spirit, it should be obvious. It should show up in how we think and how we react and how we live. It should be a part of what we think church is all about. Because Pentecost was the birth of the church. And here we are 2,000 years later. Are we still going out to the harvest? Is that still where we are putting our energy? In Matthew 9, 35-38, we see an interesting connection to this Pentecost event as we read that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As it turned out, the disciples were praying for themselves because they 
were the laborers that the Lord sent out for the harvest. The rest of the book of Acts, along with the rest of the New Testament, is about what that looked like as it sort of unfolded in the first several decades of the church. And it wasn't just them, just the twelve or doing the, the harvesting. It wasn't just those guys. Each new convert was shown how to be a disciple. How to follow Jesus and be like him. How to tell people the good news of Jesus. And each new convert was given the Holy Spirit to empower them to carry out this calling in various ways. Which means that if we have surrendered our lives to Jesus, the same is true for us. We have also been given the Holy Spirit and purified for the work of proclaiming the gospel. Just like the first disciples. Maybe not with a rush of wind or a loud sound, but we have still been given the ability to tell people about Jesus. There's one last thing that we need to look at here because it ties back into the meal that Jesus shared with the disciples the night before he was crucified, we talked about a week ago, uh, when he used Passover to describe himself and what was about to happen. In verse 12, we see that not everyone who witnessed this event had the same reaction. While some were intrigued, others mocked, claiming the disciples were just drunk on new wine. And that's ironic. Jesus had told the disciples that the wine they drank at the meal was the new covenant in his blood. And in Matthew 9, 17, Jesus said that new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And when we consider these things together, it becomes clear that this is part of what was taking place at Pentecost with the disciples. As they were filled with the new wine of the Holy Spirit, they were purified and sent into all the world to proclaim the gospel. We have been sent here. We've been called to be fruitful and multiply the kingdom in Marathon, Texas. We have been given the Holy Spirit not only as a seal, but as the power source for our calling so that we will tell people about Jesus, but we have to connect with it. We have to be tapped in so that we will show them his love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, that they might come to know him personally and surrender their lives to Jesus just as we have, so that his kingdom might come and his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because the harvest that God began at Pentecost when the disciples spoke in tongues and proclaimed the gospel, leading to Peter's sermon, and then 3,000 trusting in Jesus, that was just the beginning. That was just the first fruits of the harvest. It's still actively happening today. We've been called to the fields of Marathon as his laborers here. So let's be about the work of the kingdom. Will you pray with me?
Holy Father, we come before you. With your word resting on our hearts and minds. Pray that your spirit would take it and make it alive in us. Give us a passion for the people around us, for the people of our town in this area. A passion to tell them the good news. Jesus, that that would be who we are in this place. That people would know us by that, by the fruit that we bear. That the Spirit would call them through that to know you. For the sake of your name and your kingdom, we pray. Amen.